Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Miriam, for such a kind introduction. Well, I'm going to talk to you all today about physician burnout, and I think it's a tough topic, and I have a few disclosures before we get into it. <clears throat> First disclosure, who am I? What do I do? So I am a hemonc doctor, and I work in the clinic at San Francisco Hospital at UCSF. I'm in a clinic about two days a week, and I attend on service about three months a year, um, mostly teaching residents and fellows. Um, but my primary work is as an epidemiologist. But I do not study burnout. I study drug cost and evidence and how we think about medical decision making. And then in terms of research funding, we're funded by a nonprofit organization, and uh, I receive royalties for writing, and I do some consulting for uh, some of the insurance companies. <clears throat> but I think the real disclosure is, unlike many wellness talks, I don't have much skin in the game. I do not teach meditation. In fact, I could probably take a lesson or two. I do not teach yoga. I do not teach wellness. I do not sell any services to treat burnout. I don't coach anybody. And so I am not in the burnout solving business. And that's an important disclosure because that may explain why I'm going to you know, say some things that I'm about to say. So what is burnout? You know, when you read sort of the canonical definitions, they always have something like this that, that they offer. Burnout is a, is a result of chronic workplace stress, and it's characterized by three dimensions. One, feelings of de energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's jobs or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, so sort of depersonalized, you're feeling negative about it. And then this thing they always add to it, you're not as efficient as you otherwise would. We'll come back to this. But this is sort of, most definitions have these sorts of elements built into it. And as I prepare for this talk, I asked the people who work with me, I said, you know what, let's really get to the bottom of this. Let's do a systematic review of all of the literature on strategies to improve burnout. So let's just focus on improving burnout. We'll look at all of the literature on those strategies and let's gauge that evidence and let's see what that evidence shows. I also watched 20 hours of grand round videos on the topic of physician wellness and burnout. And then I watched many, many hours of videos on commercial services offered to physicians and trainees to mitigate burnout. And at the end of this process, I checked off all the boxes. I had energy depletion and exhaustion, increased mental distance from the job, and reduced efficacy because I hadn't made my slides, and that's why I was running late this morning. So, you know, it's interesting. You can, can you even cause burnout? When you, when you look at surveys of people, this is what I like to see. Uh, now, I like to see this is what the surveys show. They say something like, I always, I often feel worn out at the end of the working day. This is year by year among trainees. My work is emotionally exhausting to a high degree. I'm always exhausted in the morning at the thought of another day of work. I feel burnt out because of work to a high degree. And this is year over year graduate medical education surveys. You see, there's actually a drop in 2020. I think for many of us, maybe the first few weeks of lockdown and disruption were actually a relief. My calendar went from oversubscribed to absolutely empty. But then a few months later, I said, we need to start adding things back to this calendar desperately because it's a little light, a little light. But you know, then since the, since the pandemic, I think there's been an explosion in workplace stress and people are really dissatisfied in many ways with their jobs. Oh, wrong button. <clears throat> Physician burnout has reached distressing levels, new research says. This just came out a few weeks ago in the New York Times. And it all highlights the problems that we have both incredible workforce losses, 
Actually, we have a paper that we haven't yet published where we track everybody who build Medicare data, and we have shown in the last three years there has been an acceleration of retirements and people switching out of healthcare services to either work in the pharmaceutical industry or work outside of healthcare. And we also have survey after survey showing physicians are extremely dissatisfied with the job. Which physicians are most burnt out? Whenever you do this surveys, I'm always surprised because it's not always the specialties that I would have guessed would be most burnt out. Urology tops the list. You know, then neurology, PM&R, internal medicine, family medicine, and then you know, towards the bottom, nephrology, pathology, ophthalmology. So for those people looking for specialties, look at the bottom, look at the chair at the bottom of this list, or on the chair at the bottom. Um, so I asked those people who work with me, I said, let's put together a systematic review of all intervention studies. And for me, intervention studies are very important in any time you're talking about a new concept. Because when you can identify a group of people, as all intervention studies do, you have to have some rules about who you're going to include in your study, and then you have to deploy an intervention on those people and show me that you benefit those people, I think you've really learned a lot about what you're actually talking about. And the answer is when we look through all the intervention studies of burnout, I'm going to show you, the results are a little bit disappointing. I'll just give you one example. Let's just take somebody whose heart isn't squeezing well. Their ejection fraction is less than 35%. Okay, why, is the, why do we use this number? Why is it such an important number, how hot, well the heart is squeezing on the echocardiogram? It's because we have many, many randomized studies that show for people whose ejection fraction is lower than that, they benefit from all of these medications and maybe an implantable defibrillator in their chest if their QRS is wide, maybe chronic resynchronization therapy, but if their QRS is not wide, they don't benefit from that. If their ejection fraction is good, they don't benefit from the defibrillator, and they may have different drugs if their ejection fraction is good. So suddenly, by doing all these intervention studies, we have learned something about biology, that there's something important about the decline in ejection fraction. So I ask myself that about burnout. What are the characteristics of burnout that mean we can improve upon it, and what are the characteristics that may not be able to be improved upon? And here's what we find. So we find this is every single intervention study of high quality. I've just trunked, I mean, the spreadsheet goes on and on, but I've sorted them by the number of study participants, and the highest is 166, and then it quickly declines. And so the first point I want to make to you is that 166 physicians participating in a study to improve burnout is actually not a lot. And this is the best of the literature. I mean, the best we have are a couple hundred person randomized studies. And the single best, by best I mean largest, the single largest study is this one that comes out of a clinical, a cluster randomized trial to improve burnout in primary care settings. And this is the takeaway. Largest study on the topic trying to improve things. 166, clin 166 clinicians, 135 completed the study. While there was no group treatment effect of baseline data on clinical outcomes, and the answer is, basically, it was a negative study. There's no difference between the arms of the study. They keep highlighting secondary analyses that like, some people felt better in one arm or the other, but that's not the clean way to look at a randomized study. It was pretty much a negative study. Okay, so this brings me to what I hope to talk to you all about. And <clears throat> by no means is this authoritative. Maybe at the end of this, we'll have some, lots of time, and we can all talk about you know, our own feelings about this topic and what we think is right or wrong here. I think when I listen to the burnout literature, all I read about are people who want to do things we can work on internally. What can we do about ourselves? That's the entirety, I think, of the literature and of the strategies to improve outcomes. I think they don't focus enough on things we need to fix outside of us. The root causes of why we feel frustrated in our jobs, why there's burnout at every stage of the level, from being a preclinical medical student to being an attending. 
Okay, so I'm gonna walk through some of this. We'll start with outside of us. I'm gonna to try to break this apart into, you're applying to medical school, you're thinking about medical school, you're in training, you're in medical school or you're in residency, you may be thinking about the next step, and then attending life. And what I never heard in those 30 hours that I suffered through, I never heard anybody say that the solution to burnout is we might wanna fix any of these things. They never say that. They just say, have your weekend retreat and let's, let's practice breathing. But they never say all the real structural problems. Okay, let's talk about getting into medical school. I think we do a great disservice to get into medical school. There are definitely some pre-medical students who are interested in basic science careers. They want to run laboratories. They want to discover things. But some of us just want to be doctors. We just want to see patients. And we have to pretend that something different. We have to basically be something that we're not. We have to say, I also want to run a lab, and that's why I pipetted here, and I did this chemistry reaction here. But we don't want to do that. We just want to see patients, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to see patients, but the system does not allow that. And every university I've ever worked at, they really prioritize people who have shown basic science and lab work. And so what do we tell the trainees? Naturally, we tell them, if you want to go to medical school, you have to check off this box. You know, and, and that's what I did when I was a pre-medical student. But I didn't enjoy being there, I didn't want to do it, and I was deceiving myself and really deceiving others. And I think that that's a bad you know, introduction to medicine, that we have to deceive ourselves. We can't be honest about it. And the root of the problem is that the admissions committee is prioritizing this too much. I mean, that they are not giving weight to other things. Grades and test scores, I think to some degree, you know, it is stressful to always have the next test. But I do think you know, it's reasonable to some degree because you need a certain amount of competence to be a doctor. At the same time, you know, that you can over-rely on a test score. Going from the 90th to the 97th percentile might not mean that much uh, versus going from the 10th percentile to the 70th percentile, you know? So you can over-rely on test scores, I think, and that, I think that's a mistake we can make. Volunteering, I think, is good. It's one of the most wonderful things we do, and I think we should do it for genuine reasons, but we have turned it into a complete commodity. I mean, volunteering is a commodity, and jockeying for positions to volunteer at certain hospitals that are in high uh, urban areas, probably the New York City hospitals. I mean, we have wait lists of volunteers who want to come to the UCSF hospital. We're commodifying doing something charitable, and I think that's very troubling both for selecting people, but also for, I think, the spiritual value of actually doing something for other people. Um, we really do prioritize these days doing very odd things. The person who could take a year off in life and go live in China and learn Mandarin, or the person who you know, happened to go to uh, you know, uh, an island nation in French Polynesia and spend some time. We're really prioritizing these things, but these are luxuries for people who have a lot of wealth and a lot of connections, and these are not luxuries that anyone can, can have happen to them or be able to do. Extra years off. I feel like I'm a, I'm a unicorn sometime because every year that goes by, I've been attending for eight years, there's always a Hemonk fellow older than me. And that's because you have to take so many years off to get into medical school these days. I think we may have been, I might have been the last generation where you could actually go from college to medical school. But I do not think that you, I would have ever been successful in today's climate because to get into a medical school, particularly like UCSF medical school, the average is people have taken three, four, five years off just to bolster their CV to even be competitive. And so we're, again, delaying, I think, living your life, and we're just adding more and more hurdles that is stressing young people out. And they have to be aware of those hurdles before the hurdles come. So even at the age of 17 and 18, they have to already be thinking ahead. Uh, what are the strategies I need? And I think that's a lot of stress on a young person. I think we're increasingly turning youth into a commodity. 
You, c you can't afford to take a summer in your high school years and just read fiction or just travel or spend time with your parents or just work in a laundromat or just work in a grocery store because everything you have to do has to be strategic to get into medical school. So your entire youth becomes a commodity. Uh, we strongly select against kids who took them a while to figure out what they want to do in their life. And sometimes people who take a while to figure out what they want to do in their life are the doctors you most want. They're really doing it for the right reason. I think it's difficult to go to medical school and sustain uh, work-life balance, home-life balance, uh, particularly for, I've been impressed that there are you know, some people here who have kids as medical students. That's very impressive because I think it's, it's very challenging because the nature of the work is, is not conducive to that. Holistic review, lots of universities have switched away from reliance on test scores to holistic review and they do so because they think things like testing, these sort of metrics are discriminatory, that they have all these spillover consequences. But I, what I think they don't realize is that holistic review may also be very discriminatory. It really prioritizes people who have the opportunity to have sort of unusual experiences that we like to talk about on the committee meetings. And also, it, it, it changes it a little bit in the sense that this person out there who has an experience that they don't want to share, that person is sort of disadvantaged. Because if you're willing to share the hardest, the darkest, part of your past, you're, you may even get a boost in these committee meetings. What about the person who wants to keep it to themselves? <laughs> that kind of person. You know, what about the person who doesn't feel comfortable sharing these things? That person, I think, is disadvantaged. So what's my solution, I think, to some of these challenges? And I guess I'll be curious what you all think in the discussion. Or you can interrupt. I'm curious what you all think. But my solution is the only solution I can think of, and maybe I'm wrong, I, and you may not, I don't know, you're not going to like it, but it's done in other countries like Denmark, is a modified lottery. I think what we have to admit is that there are so many people who want to be good doctors, and there's so many paths to being a good doctor that are diverse. And you could have been a waitress in high school, and you could have worked at a grocery store in college, and you could still be every bit as good a doctor as somebody who volunteers 1,000 hours in pipettes in the Nobel laureate's lab. Okay, so these are all diverse paths to being a good doctor. And the truth is, there's more people out there who want that spot than there are spots to have. And we can continue to escalate this arms race where we destroy youth and make everyone from the age of 12 have a singular focus on going to medical school. Or we can say there's certain prerequisites. You check these very basic boxes. And then beyond that, you pass that hurdle, there will be a lottery process for the medical school spots. Maybe we'll expand the medical school spots. Your odds are better. But to some degree, it'll take it out of your hands so that you're not incentivized to go on the, you know, to, to, to write your 17th paper. I mean, I get emails from, from people who say, I'm a sophomore, Dr. Prasad, can I work in your lab? I want to publish a paper. I said, what, what college do you go to? He said, oh, I'm a sophomore in high school. You know, and I think that that's, that's really a lot of pressure. Okay, so modified lottery, they do it in some you know, Scandinavian countries. They say, here are the benchmarks, and then beyond that, we have a lottery. And I think people feel like it's giving away some control about your life, but to some degree, it's giving you, I think, some autonomy back. <clears throat> okay, let's talk about training. Residency, fellowship, college, yeah, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, then your extra fellowship, and then the, the second fellowship you need after the first fellowship, and then your instructorship position before you, be, you get the assistant professorship. I think it's way too long. What are we doing? How many years are we spending training? I spent 10 years, and I got away light, got away easy. Now I think it's easy to spend 12 years, for people who MD, PhDs, I know, 15, 17 years in training. I mean... You know, I sometimes say you're gonna come out of training and you're gonna have to apply to Medicare. I mean, it's really been a long, a long ordeal here. Um, it's belittling. I think we have to acknowledge that for a lot of people, particularly smart people who are 
you know, in their late 30s, it is belittling to be a perpetual trainee. You don't have the autonomy you have as an attending, which has also been diminished, which I'll come to. Many of the years, I think, are strictly exploitative. I mean, why do we have seven-year neurosurgery residencies so they can do two years of hard-hitting chart review research? No, it's so that they can be part of a call pool. They need seven years of residence, so seven years of residence can take the call for the five years of residence that you actually need in the operating room. And so we have created a research year program that is exploitative. It's just to create a very cheap labor force that is willing to do a lot of work for low pay and with, low, you know, and, and with uh, very little support. And salaries are frankly kept low solely because of antitrust violations. In other words, the NRMP, which is exempted from antitrust litigation, is the one decisive factor in preventing residents and hospitals from entering into fair negotiations. You have to match, and if you don't fulfill your match requirement, you'll be kicked out of the NRMP match. And that has been shown to reduce salaries. And, and it would have been litigated, except uh, you know, when George W. Bush was in, in president, they passed a bill that exempts two things, the Major League Baseball and the NRMP from antitrust litigation, and so it continues to this day. I think residency can be shortened, and I think most of our residencies are probably a year too long. I think medical school is at least one year too long. They say the fourth year of medical school is the most expensive vacation of your life. I think we're training people to do paperwork. I mean, the first couple years of medical training, we're training you to be a very efficient paperwork producer, and there's always the star intern. The star intern is the star paperwork producer. But then you're a doctor, and you know, paperwork, unfortunately, is a, too much of our lives, but we're, we have to do things beyond the paperwork, and we have to think about the big picture about somebody's life. And I think we need to exempt interns, I think, from this scut work. Uh, there's not enough time actually teaching people and talking to people about why are you making the decisions you're making. I think even I feel rushed to do that. I don't always make my decisions transparent, but, and, but I make an, a huge effort to try to do so to the fellows I work with. I want them to know, you know, why do I say what I say? I want them to know why. I mean, they may not agree with me, that's okay, but I want them to hear what I'm thinking. And that's very important because when you're on your own, someday you're gonna one has to sort of solve a lot of puzzles that nobody explicitly trained you for. Um, we're constantly adding new years. We have a phase one fellowship after hemonc fellowship. We have a bone marrow transplant fellowship after hemonc fellowship. There's a new fellowship every day of the week. Your field rate on you're getting more and more fellowships. We have to stop this. I mean, this is all a way to sort of stretch out training and keep people away from, I think, their real jobs. And finally, I think we don't talk enough about this, but along the way, all through your training, you will have, I think, bad teachers People who are bad speakers, bad slides, bad lectures, and they're just not meeting the needs of the trainee. And we have a very poor mechanism to actually identify people who are dull and plodding and boring and not persuasive and can't even, and you know, not really getting the point across, and actually move them out and move somebody in who's a little bit better. I think we have a very poor mechanism for that. Meanwhile, there are other things we have a very sharp mechanism for moving people out, which I think we're going to talk about in a second. So attending life, I think attending life is Good. I mean, it's the best part. <laughs> better than before. Better than what came before. But it, you know, it, it's also part of the reason why people feel burned out because it's we being you know death by a thousand cuts. One in terms of our pay. I think uh, you know many people feel as if the pay is unfair, and there are many many studies that show inequities in pay by all of the classic ways in which discrimination occurs by gender and by race, but also in ways in which you know people who are not assertive, people who aren't pushy, personality traits that actually diminish somebody's salary. And I think many people are earning the hospitals millions of dollars, and they're getting just a tiny fraction of the revenue they're generating for the hospital. Uh, in our own department in oncology, 
you know, they always tell us like, oh, you know, you all are in deficit, deficit, deficit. They don't give us credit for all the imaging we're referring. That imaging is what put food on their table. <laughs> you need our imaging, you know? And so there are ways in which people selectively choose the downstream products of what your, your labors are, and then they find a way to, you know, use it to justify pay. Private equity. This is the one sin, not of our generation, but of the prior generation, which you all sold your practices to private equity. And private equity has a singular focus on profit and no focus on the physicians behind it. And I think the death of a lot of private practices has been the squeeze and squeeze of private equity. Many years ago I interviewed, I think, at the last doctor-owned practice in Oregon, in oncology, and they were actually much happier than a lot of practices because they didn't have the, the, the squeeze of private equity on them. Um, the rise of the administrative state. You know, universities are now, we're like two to one administrators to faculty members. Uh, inordinate amount of time on paperwork. I think this is the bane of every physician's life and also the single thing that pops up in surveys. We spend too much time on paperwork. Not enough time to think about the medical issues. You know, recently I had a clinic and half of my clinic visits were people who needed some form filled out so they could get some medicine and the other half were things where I had to use my brain and actually think about what's best for this person. And that ratio is not, is not a satisfying ratio. You know, I mean, I'm no better than filling out this paperwork than anyone else. That's not what I went to medical school for. And I'm not particularly gifted in filling out the paperwork. In fact, I'm probably the worst paperwork filler outer in the universe, you know? But the other thing I feel like I'm good at, and that's what I want to be doing. Um, and I think another challenge that we don't talk enough about is many people want to work fewer hours. They're willing to accept the proportionate pay cut but they're not allowed to. You either gotta work all or nothing, and I think that's a very cruel world, uh, and a very unfair system that you can't cut back to 60%, or there's stigma about it, or you know, they hold up your promotion, or they take away some vacation days, or all sort of these sort of you know, ways in which they pressure you to be either full-time or nothing at all. And I think for many of us, we wanna be something in between. Uh, too many emails, too many warnings. My whole epic experience is nothing but warning after warning. You think, you think I was up to something. You know, you think I was up to some trouble. Too many interruptions. I mean, I think when you're in clinic or when you're on service and somebody is literally tapping you on the shoulder or paging you every 15 seconds, it's no way to live. You cannot sustain a single thought in your head. I think it's a single thing that frustrates people and it was the hardest part about being a resident. Not enough support. Not working at the top of your license. You feel as if the care could be better and it could be. I think that's a tough one. For many of us, we imagine, I mean, and a good doctor should, what if this is my own mother, this is my own father? What kind of care would I want for them? Would I want them to have waited so long in that terrible plastic chair? Would I want them to have a three-week delay to get the MRI? Would I want them to have this challenge in getting the infusion when they want? And the answer is no. Your mother thought you wouldn't want that. And so you don't want that for your patient either, and yet the system is inflexible and intractable, and yet you have to put up with it. And I think that's very frustrating. You can't get something. I work at the county hospital in the VA, and you know, so all I have are brick walls that I have to smash every day, you know, all the barriers to do what I want to do. Attending life. My, the bane of my existence is too many modules. Every week I get another email, you're overdue on the module. And what is the threat they give me? The threat they say, Dr. Prasad, you're gonna lose your epic access. I said, take it away, take it away. Just take it away. Oh, are you gonna punish me by making me not have to do those notes? Okay, fine, yeah, sure. Okay, too many modules. And these modules are designed but, I can't even say what I was going to say. Uh, the modules are very poorly designed because the modules, I've never learned anything from a single module. The module, 
First of all, now they have this thing where as you click on the module, you can't, you can't just click to the next slide. It has a certain timer on it, and you have to sit there with it, even though I can read 50 times faster than what they, and if they think I read that slow, then they really need to have me committed because I really have a startling read. Okay, they, they force you to look at it, and then it says, you have discovered a packet of personal healthcare information. What do you do? Option A, shred it. Option B, tweet it. And it's like, it's not, okay, it's obvious. It's obvious, okay? You're not teaching me anything. I think it's a bane of our existence, too many surveys. In fact, I find it ironic that the literature on burnout is dominated by surveys that nobody wants to fill out. Their completion rate is in the low 20% or lower. Nobody wants to fill out a survey about burnout. And yet they keep sending you the survey because that's how they're making their research career, which I'm gonna to come to. Um, continual board accreditation. We've never asked ourselves, you know, from people who graduated before, what was the year, 92? They were quote-unquote grandfathered or grandmothered into having perpetual board certification. Then there was this idea that, well, you know, they're not going to keep up with the latest information. They're not going to be sharp. They're going to be, you know, you know that, that doctor that everyone looks the other way about. But the tr and then we created all these systems. Every 10 years accreditation. Now what do they call it? Maintain maintenance of certification. And you have to keep paying money. And all these CME credits, I have to keep keeping track of them. You know, and, and no one has ever proven that this entire apparatus actually makes us better doctors. It's extremely lucrative. A lot of people make money off of its back. It keeps us very busy. I'm constantly chasing these tokens, and no one has ever established that as a result of it, I'm any better. And yet we as physicians have blindly accepted this. Why do we accept this? I don't accept this. I want to go back to the old way. I have my board certification, and if you disagree with how I practice medicine, you feel free to take me to court. But I do not want to be doing any more of these little modules, and I find them, I find them distasteful, and I think we should have opposed them more. Computerized. Computerized records were, where did they go? Computerized records were really kind of pushed on us through High Tech Act and other sort of, I mean, it was not something we voluntarily adopted. And there are definitely practices that benefit from computerized records, but there are also places that work just fine, like a primary pediatric care clinic, where it's like a single doctor, it worked just fine on a paper record because you had so many panel patients and you had all their charts right there in one cabinet and it was just fine. And they didn't need to be pressured the same way as you know major hospital system. Too many meetings, particularly outside of business hours, I find to be a pet peeve. I gotta go back to San Francisco, I fly back, I got a 6 p.m. meeting, 6 to 7 p.m. to discuss a class we're teaching. I don't wanna be at this meeting. I'm gonna try to get out of here. Okay, uh, the last few points. <laughs> going on and on. Uh, people who set the policy no longer practice as medicine. I'm so tired of somebody who does one half day a week of clinic telling me about the module they're adding and how it's not going to be a burden to you. You're only here one half day. Of course, it's a little difference for you, but for someone who's here all the time, it's a big difference. And you don't appreciate that because you're not really even a doctor anymore. You know, I don't know what you're doing. You're, you're a hobbyist, I call them hobbyists. Delegate, people, I always see the burnout talks, they say you should delegate more. But delegation is only as good as the person you delegate to. And there's some people that I see around the office that I'd be very scared to delegate anything to. Might as well just not do it. It's not going to get done. Um, doing anything on Zoom I find distasteful, including the uh, medical school and residency applications, I think. The more we live our lives virtually, uh, the less we really get to experience it. And I think that's incredibly distasteful. Um, uh, you know, they've cheated us out of every little thing. Used to go to tumor board at 7 a.m. and they'd have a cup of coffee. Now there's no coffee anymore, budgetary constraints. It's a little thing, but I don't want to wait 45 minutes to get a cup of black coffee to come to this, you know. I think they need to provide, you know, more of these sorts of things. And not my, la my next anecdote, too glib. I mentioned earlier that I think you can be a faculty member and teach students for many, many years and you can be very boring and not very good at teaching and no one would remove you from that position. 
I stand by that. But there are a new category of things that if even you do the slightest, you can be removed in an instant. And one is this, two clip. And I hope this person doesn't mind me sharing this story. This is a true story. Happened to a colleague of mine who's a faculty member at a different university. It may sound like it's me, but it's not me. I promise you it's not me. I tell you if it's me, I have no shame. Um, this person gave a lecture, and the lecture was on a cancer topic to the medical students. And it was just a simple topic. We need to learn you know, this cancer, where it comes from, its epidemiology, how we treat it, how we stage it. Just very basic. This person was summoned to the dean's office, gets called in. Even doing that to somebody, I think, is already a big move. So you better have a good reason before you summon me to the dean's office. I'm going to be anxious about it, and you know, it's not a nice thing to do to somebody. Gets summoned to the, the dean's office, sit down. I want to talk to you. The students, but they don't say how many. You know, the student class, 170 people. The students complained in your lecture about cancer that you were too glib. Too glib. This person says, what does that mean, too glib? And they said they didn't like your tone. The tone, he says, what is it, what, what was wrong with my, what was wrong with my tone? And then he has to, he has to look up glib, because he's really kind of forgotten what glib means. He says, showing little forethought or preparation offhand glib, marked by ease and informality, nonchalant, lacking depth and substance, glib solutions to naughty problems. Okay, so he's not even really, he doesn't really have a full understanding. And then they say, well, you know, maybe you were joking a little bit too much, and cancer's a serious topic. And my colleague wants to remind the person that of everyone involved in this transaction, from the student, to the dean, to my colleague, that only my colleague is the one who's actually been there at bedside when people die. That my colleague is the cancer doctor. The dean is not the cancer doctor. And the student, with all love to them, they're not a cancer doctor either. And my colleague is the one who's held the hands of loved ones and widows. And my colleague is the one who goes to funerals. And my colleague is the one who speaks to the loved one when the loved one is dying. And so my colleague wants to say that you don't get to tell me that I don't have the right tone to do this lecture because I'm the one who's living it every day. And yet the fact that they called him in for this, I find astonishing. What they should say to the student is, you know what, I'm sorry you didn't like this person's tone. It's kind of a vague allegation, you know? I mean, maybe it was acceptable, maybe it wasn't. I wasn't there, I don't know what the tone was. But in life, there's gonna be somebody, you're giving a lecture, and you're not gonna like their tone. And you can't complain about every little thing. Okay, so 360 degree reviews, I think to some degree, we're living in this tattletale culture where I'm so worried about everything I'm gonna say. And I will tell you this little story. I was once, <laughs> I was once giving a talk about osteoporosis, okay? I didn't pick the learning material. I teach epidemiology to the students. I hope there's no audio tape of this going. Okay, good, good. Okay, <laughs> I teach epidemiology to the students. I have to teach sensitivity and specificity of the DEXA scan, okay? The study we're teaching is 1992 Annals of Internal Medicine. They followed tens of thousands of women. The women were white or Asian. They followed them for decades to see how many had fractures and what was the DEXA scan. Okay, question number one from the student, Dr. Prasad. The study says specifically we excluded African-American women. Why was that the case? And then I realized that I had a tough question to answer. <laughs> I was like, how am I going to answer this question? I said, one, I want to let you know something. Number one, off the bat, 1992, I was 10 years old and I was not participating in this study. That's number one. I just want to make it clear, I was 10 years old. Number two, I did not design, conduct, write, report this study. Number three, I did not select this study for your curriculum. Okay, I didn't do that. Number four, I want to point out that the last author of this study, go ask him. Let's go ask him. He'll know the answer. But I think it's tough because as a faculty, I was scared to even try to actually explain what happened. And the answer was, of course, that 
back in the early 1990s, it was felt that African-American women were less likely to have osteoporotic fractures. I mean, that was the answer. I mean, but I was scared to tell them that because I'll be called into the dean's office, you know? <laughs> and I probably would have been. But my method worked. Uh, okay, so research, I don't know if any, many people here do the research part of academics. Just by show of hands, who here is also a researcher? Okay, a few people. All right, so you'll share my frustrations. Okay, research, what do I think the major you know, culprits for burnout are with research? I think the university has become an extension of corporations. I mean, I don't feel like I'm working at a place where we talk about knowledge anymore. I'm working at Literally, Genentech Hall, because that's the name of the building, you know? And then they're building another building where we're making CAR T. And the entire focus in my department constantly is about industry collaborations. And I'm not opposed to those collaborations, but I just can't understand why that is the only thing we ever talk about. Of course, it's the money. But what about the idea that a university is a place for scholarship or challenging ideas or debates or talking about important things? And that is all really retreating from the research agenda. Faculty feel replaceable on these large grants. You are running the trial by that you follow the protocol, and if you don't do a good job, they just find the next fellow to come and take your role. So you're replaceable. What sort of scholarship is it if you're an interchangeable part? Many self-directed projects lack support, maybe poorly communicated and conceptualized. I think many people are doing research that they don't want to do. They're just doing it to get the five papers to go from assistant to associate because their boss said they don't want to do the paper. It shows. Why are we making them continue this, you know, this, this farce 20 years after they got into medical school? And I think the criteria for promotion are flawed. All right. Well, I had a lot left. Let's see what's worth talking about. I know we just have, what do we have, 10 minutes left. <coughs> I'll skip that part. So, pardon. let's just talk about the next part, inside of us. Okay, so I think I spent a lot of time talking about all these external factors because I think, I, I, having done my literature review that I told you about, and my survey, they are never discussed in burnout lectures. They never acknowledge that there are parts of the job that have deteriorated severely, particularly robbing physicians of autonomy and time, and making physicians feel very defensive and anxious all the time, that rob physicians of the experience of what it was like to be a doctor 20 or 30 years ago. And they, without acknowledging that problem, they don't seem to want to fix that. They want to put a Band-Aid on a hemorrhage, which is the weekend retreat, which is the meditation hour, which is, you know, we're going to have a trust-building exercise, or we're going to have a module on burnout you need to complete. And we do have such modules, you know? So, and, and this to me speaks to, I think, the disconnect that the administrators have taken over the universities and doctors and professors are practically, you know, their employees. And I think that was a grave mistake that we had made. What I want to say is that does not exempt us from things that we can do for ourselves. And I want to make this point, which I think is we all can be doing things to make our own lives better and we owe it to ourselves to do that. These are just a few thoughts. One, job versus passion. I'm a little bit critical of this rhetoric that, you know, that your job has to always be something you love. Because I do think sometimes a job is a job you don't love. And I think about my own father who never had burnout, who never had burnout because he really needed that job so he could have the money so that we could eat. You know? And so when your life is boiled down to that degree of simplicity, I think that you acknowledge that there'll be a lot of things you do that are unpleasant or uncomfortable. And so I do think that we can work a little bit better on tolerating a little bit more in our minds. And on days when I'm very frustrated, I remind myself, 
you know, I, I, there's still parts of this job I really enjoy and I, and I get to do what I want a lot. Customer service industry, I think it's, it's hard to remind ourselves that to some degree medicine has always been and it will always be a customer service industry where you want the person who comes to see you to have a good experience and so you have to kind of put on a brave face for that. Um, I think inside of us, one of the greatest sources of frustration I feel from the residents and fellows is that if they're forced to practice when they don't really deeply understand something, they get really snippy and angry. Somebody calls them about a patient bleeding out with von Willebrands and the factor level, blah, blah, blah. Should I give the factor or not have the factor? And they haven't really ever sat down and thought about their entire algorithm for von Willebrands. You feel a pang of frustration. Why is this person bothering me? And the nice thing about practice is the more you do it, for every situation you could ever encounter, I don't want to say I'm right, but I certainly know what I'm going to do because I have all these mental pathways built out, every situation, and the moment you get to that point where you feel like you really have thought about it, you understand it, you do your own thing, I think that takes away that frustration. And so one thing we can do to help improve things is to actually help people understand our thought processes and why we have our algorithms in our mind. Um, two problems that I'll just leave you with. I think uh, people who feel they're unable to say no because of a perceived opportunity and people who feel they're unable to say no because of retribution. What do I mean by this? I just talked to someone, and I didn't actually tell her face to face what I thought, so maybe someday she'll hear this talk and she'll, she'll learn the hard way. But she was saying that it was her birthday during a national conference, and she did not want to go to the conference because it was a milestone birthday. I won't say how old she was, but it was a milestone birthday. She didn't want to go to the conference. And then she was asked to chair a session, and she was like, it's a good opportunity, so I guess I gotta go, you know? And what I wanted to say to her was, you know what, it's not that good an opportunity. You had already decided you don't want to go, it's your birthday, and you know, life is like that. You feel as if every opportunity is great. Then five years later, you wonder why the hell did I go there? It's not a great opportunity, it didn't lead to anything, and here I am stuck in the same rut. Uh, you know, it's not a great opportunity, it just feels that way at the time. Unable to say no because of fear of retribution. I, during the peak pandemic, I would get seven peer review manuscript requests per week. That's one per day. I was just getting request, 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 request. I cannot review all these articles. I have to write my own articles that somebody else will struggle to find reviewers for. I don't have time to review all these articles. I'm not interested in it. And yet, many people tell me, you gotta be careful. You don't wanna say no too much because then they're not gonna accept your articles. Fear of retribution, you know? And I was like, well, you know what? I don't care, <laughs> I don't care, so I'm just gonna say no. You know? But I think a lot of us operate that way, that if you don't accept this opportunity now, even though it's miserable, maybe the next opportunity that you actually want won't come along. And I think we have to resist that temptation. And I think the last thing I'll say is that we often feel as if care could be better, but sometimes the truth answer is, could it? You know, sometimes there are struggles our patients deal with and there are logistic hassles and it really is moving as fast as it can. We should take that pressure off ourselves a little bit. Okay. So, the last thing I want to leave you with, I find that people say burnout means you're less productive at work. They always say that at their things. One of the reasons to tackle burnout and wellness is that the doctors are less productive when they're burned out. I think that is so backwards. They're, they've literally lost the whole plot. It's a bizarre way of thinking that my emotions are only relevant insofar as it helps your bottom line. And that thinking is literally the cause of all of this maladies along the way. All right, so. Okay, I'll end with my final disclosure. I won't be talking about this issue. My final disclosure is, I say all this, but if, I, if, you put, if you really ask me, truth be told, do I believe happiness is the end point of life? And I do think something has shifted from my grandparents' generation to 
probably my generation beyond, where more and more people feel like the goal of life is happiness. And I don't think I subscribe to that view. For me, I believe it is duty. And duty can mean different things to different people. It can be cultural, it can be familial, it can be religious, it can all senses of duty. And being a doctor to me is an ancient duty. It goes back thousands of years. It's an important duty. And I think it's important to remind ourselves that it's not always about my immediate happiness. It's about living a life where you fulfill some purpose of duty, whatever that is to you. And I think, I think that makes you more resilient if you think about it that way and allows you to focus on what really matters. So thank you so much for this opportunity. And thanks, happy to take questions.